actually not at my own place where I have like a nice little recording studio set up and a nice mic. And here I am somewhere else and I don't have all those cool things. I don't have them either. I mean, okay, right cool. now the podcast is just me and trying to find some device that will record the podcast. You sound fine to me. I mean, I can understand you perfectly well, so okay. you should be okay. I think Excellent. we'll be okay. Um, yeah, but uh, I, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for people to read this book. I was really, it really came at a good time for me. I was having a hard week when I read it. Um, and I, I was having a hard week as a writer. And it was, it felt good to read some, somebody's uh, cathartic work, which one of the things, I mean, like your book is, one of like the meta narratives is writing an article about Niagara Falls mm -hmm. and like the difficulty of like uh, getting yourself to buckle down and write it. Mm -hmm. But it made me wonder like, were you writing this other book in the time that you weren't writing the article about Niagara Falls, like, were you actually writing these sort of memories? And, and I mean, it's a very, I, I think there's like a lucid sort of present tense narrative that my brain wants to accept as auto fiction, but maybe that's not the way it happened. I'm just curious. Oh, you, you did cut off just for one second. You said your brain does something. Oh, for fuck's and, sake. And happened. I guess this is, we just have to deal with it. Okay. Oh, it was, you, I heard everything except for what you said before you, the word happened. Oh, I, I wondered if, if you, if it really happened that you were writing this book while you were not writing the article for, for like the Western New York Historical Society. No, it, it was two different times. So um, the book the book came about because uh, I actually wanted to write a book. I was trying to write a book about the article. So I, I, I was trying to write um, like that article and turn that into a full length book. And I got r really bored with it. I couldn't really write in that. I couldn't sustain that voice for for a a hundred page, couple hundred pages or whatever. Yeah. So it was taking me forever. So this book, it feels to me, took forever to write, but that's only because it was a completely different book at first. And then, and then I started to think, well, I can sort of write about the article, but just really write about the time that I was there and mm -hmm. have that be a meta narrative that runs through it. But the article was about as much I, as I was going to write. So, okay. So I just switched so while, and just started writing about the time there instead of the actually our actual article. It would be like, so it, when was, you, it was like Susan Orland's uh, 
what was that book she wrote? That Orchid, added, the Orchid Thief. Yeah, so it's like Susan Orley writing The Orchid Thief and adaptation at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Actually, I mean, that's a really good, that's a pretty good metaphor. Yeah. But except like, hmm. Okay, so you, so, but it's, so you, you went to Niagara Falls, which is your hometown, mm -hmm. to research an article for this publication, this kind of academic publication. And then when you went, and then once that was out, you sort of wanted to turn it into a longer book thinking, I don't know, what were you thinking? Were you thinking like, like this will be a real coffee table book for, for people? Like, were, did you think it had like commercial promise? No, I'm sorry, no. I'm laughing. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I don't, I, I, I think, I think, I don't know what has commercial promise. No, neither do I. But I, and I, so I wasn't driven by it at all. It was more I was driven by how amazing that the story is. Yeah. People um, are aware of that subplot of of Love Canal. Um, so, and I just thought this story of this guy who is this socialist utopian with like natural naturalist and industrialist um, impulses that wanted to create this city that would be a model for everyone to create um, functional, poverty-less, uh, green city. And his name goes down in history as being connected to the worst environmental disaster that are in our country, the first Superfund site. Um, so I just thought that that tragic irony was so rich and and then everything about him, how he was maybe a hustler, maybe just a like innocent dreamer. Um, no one knows where he died. Like I couldn't find his grave. Um, I was just like, this story is so great. Maybe it's a book. Yeah. So that's the yeah. only thing to write about that. And then and then as you were writing it, you were kind of thinking about the time that you spent there and then that took over. Is that sort of how it happened? Well, sort of. I mean, I make it kind of clear in the book that I really was trying to tell myself that I was there because I was a, a researcher. I was also there because um, I was at a really weird time in my life and I kind of had nowhere else to go. And I was just kind of like trying to figure stuff out in this home base, which had never been a home base for me before uh, since I had left, you know, when I was 18 or 19. So I was just like wondering if it, if it would feel like a home or some sense of familiarity or mm -hmm. security. Um, did you, uh, were you there in that um, Misery Loves Company reading? Yes. I wasn't I wasn't there, but I watched it afterwards. And I, I, I recall I was just going to bring that up because I recall what you said was like you were living in New York and you sort of got canceled and you had to leave. Yeah, big time. No, it wasn't New York. It was a much smaller city. It was Baltimore, which is if I got canceled. Oh, my God. In, if I got canceled I used to live in, in Baltimore. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, if, if I got canceled in New York, I would probably still be in New York, but 
Yeah. It's a little bit more suffocating when you get canceled in a, you know, smaller, uh, smaller city, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that's what, that's, that's the first place that I was drawn to going back to. Cause I, I literally lost, I got kind of forced to move out of that. Um, and then, so yeah, I lost you, even. What were you, <laughs> what were you doing in Baltimore? I was running a performance space and still making no money, but <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, so so that pushed me to Niagara Falls at that point, and uh, you know I thought I had been thinking, obviously since the whole cancel thing happened, you're you're wondering like how do I express this, especially as a writer, like. How do I put it out there? I had a lot of failed attempts at it. Um, you know, like I had the attempts at it that were just like any other, you know, like right after a cancellation kind of responses, like crazy apologies to like crazy angry, like what, why the fuck is this happening kind of stuff? Um, you know, and then like little posts about it and even an article about it that's on online. And then I was just like, you know, I, I don't really like it any of the ways that I've expressed myself about it. So maybe the best way to express myself about it in terms of writing is to write a piece that has, that is about it, but mentions, never mentions it, never mentions the time that it happened, but mentions the time right afterwards. Because um, I think that those, you know, when it happens, it's really intense and everyone's around you. And you got your everyone's supporting you, making sure you're okay or whatever. Um, and then at, at some point, those people have to go back to what they do and they got to go back to their own life. Um, and they can't be with you the entire time that you're trying to move on. And then, so that period right after, and this happens like when after, you know, a, a, a death of someone close to you or something too, where it's like, few months after the funeral kind of feeling it's like it's a different kind of depression i i felt like the depression that i was having when it was happening was a real hot depression and mm -hmm. it became a real cold depression because <laughs> you're it's much more alienating isolating alone uh, a lot more of like uh a lot more pretending like i'm okay uh, i could do mm. it it's just a lot of searching and figuring out. So I thought, wow, that's a really rich, that was a really rich period um, to write about. And, and that's, that's the Niagara Falls piece. And, and I felt that it was really good. And I don't know, I, I don't know like the word therapeutic, but it felt really good to write about it in my own, in a voice that I felt was my own voice and comfortable and not like culture worry or anything like that, but just like an experience. Yeah, well, it de I would say it definitely doesn't come across as I mean, the like when you mentioned that in the Misery Loves Company reading, I thought, oh, I'll read this and I'll pick up on the fact that he's going through this this period of of deep social ostracization. But I didn't feel that at all, actually. I mean, if like if I had, I I sort of had the feeling that you lost 
your job, you know, or that you were a person that didn't really have a job um, or, or a sort of steady means of making money. But, but in terms of like understanding you as somebody who had had this rich, full life before and now was entering into this like very, um, you know, like meager uh, period that it could have been you I would have p possibly believed that you were meager to begin with like that, that you never had a period of 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 you know cu cultural richness or artistic richness or um social richness so yeah so I don't know I mean it's uh, it's interesting to me because it's like the messages that you were so clearly writing about a lot of them got got hidden you know you you put the broccoli and the mac and cheese <laughs> i did well um one thing i will say is i i um i still felt like i was living a meager life where i was i think that's why it was so easy to cancel me you know it's a lot easier to cancel someone who like is has no it, it, it's a lot easier to cancel the powerless and pretend that they're powerful, but like canceling someone who is on food stamps is not, it's kind of low hanging fruit. Um, so, <laughs> um, the, uh, but certainly I had a different life uh, is how yeah. I, a different life and a much more, uh, a life that was much more secure as, of my surroundings. Uh, a life with some bearings at least. And uh, it's to have your whole identity fractured like that is the weirdest part of being canceled. I've been thinking about writing a substack about being canceled again, not in any corny way, but just how weird it is. Like not how bad, yeah. it, is, bad it is or whatever, but it is a, it was a really weird thing. Cause it, cause at least this brand of it is a very modern phenomenon. So there's not a lot of like, you know, books you can read like what to do when you're canceled because no one was really, it was pretty. It was pretty modern kind of way of dealing with it. The, the, it's it's a really strange thing that happens to your identity because, especially, you know, in these in it, again, it was in the height of the cancel times, like it was 2018. Um, so, um, why do no you say that's I'm, the height of the cancel? Wait, why do you say that's the height of the cancel times? Um, I'm just thinking about about the middle of it because to me it was kind of, um, I mean, at least in what I'm experience was experiencing it was kind of at its worst between like 2016 2020, and then it kind of sort of um, diminished in small incremental ways. So I, by I guess instead of height, I should say in the middle. It was in the middle of those times. Uh, I don't know where the peaks and valleys were of it, but um, but. Yeah, it was definitely in the in that period where, um, you know, like accusations go crazy, and, and just whatever whatever people say goes. So knowing that I wasn't guilty of everything that I was being accused of, I was being accused of things by people who didn't even know me because it's the way the rumors. Mm. And to see people online talking about Rick Royer in a way that I know isn't Rick Royer, I mean, there were even people saying like that I was rich. And it was like to see this name go through this thing that's not me 
it's it's a very fracturing psychological thing like dude who is this guy with my name uh you know so yeah anyway um i met somebody who got canceled he was um huh we're all starting to if we're not canceled we're at least meeting someone who's canceled but who is this person yeah i mean he was my ex-boyfriend's friend and he was a musician in LA who had a band with a stupid name that I can't remember, which is probably for the best, mm-hmm. but he was playing, his band was playing at a pretty big venue in Berlin. And so we went to see his show. And then the next day we went to have breakfast or brunch with him. And my, my boyfriend at the time was like, look, here's what you have to know about Mike, okay? Like, don't read anything about him online. And because, like, he had this crazy Russian girlfriend, and she said that he was, like, domestically abusing her. And, like, you know, he got cut from, like, all of these festivals after that happened. And he's still fighting it in the courts, and he'll never win because you know, whatever she says and her, like, you know, basically it was like, I was being told this story that was like, you know, you better be on team Mike when we go to this brunch. (laughs) And then I, and, and then I went to the brunch and, and Mike could not have been more of an asshole. I mean, this guy was just like, a chef's kiss asshole like he was telling so many la uh name droppy stories that like placed him above celebrities that i had heard of you know like (laughs) beck and uh vincent gallo and oh al pacino he said he goes to al pacino's house for private screenings and i was like I was like, I hope, I hope he, I hope he never makes it out of this life. Like, he's just awful. Like, he was telling stories about Beck that were so embarrassing that I felt bad for Beck that he didn't know that this guy was telling stories about him. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, so I don't know. So the thing is, is like, this is a person that probably would swear up and down that he didn't do anything wrong and would probably swear up and down that everybody's after him and that's why this is all happening. But like from where I was sitting, his behavior was so egregious that I just had the feeling that like he's not self-aware enough to see what a schmuck he is right which you know which begs the question like is you know could that have been true for you which part could have been true that you just can't you can't see your brand of asshole um no i could i could see it um but um seeing it and um well 
what you're talking about with this person named Mike, and you said he'd go he'll go around saying like everyone's after him. I mean, I never I never did that part. And um I I think instead of seeing there is of course seeing one's own assholeness or um taking accountability, but you can only take accountability for for what you've done, not for what you haven't done. Um so being at peace with knowing what you have done, but also being at peace with knowing what you didn't do. Um, yeah. Because, um, that's where you can have the self-assurance to say, I can, uh, you know, I could get back on my feet because I know I'm not that bad. And after you've been accused and after you've been like hounded for so long, it's so hard. It's just, you know, I, you know, that show, the innocence project, they were, there was one episode where some guy was saying that, um, even people that are falsely accused of murder can at some, sometimes they'll think maybe I actually did do that. Like yeah. Maybe I, yeah. Out. maybe I don't remember it. So when you're, yeah. when you're accused really hard, you, you can really start thinking, holy shit, maybe I am that bad. Or maybe I did these things. Maybe I blacked out or something. So, uh, yeah. so that's what I mean by coming to, terms and being at peace with knowing that you didn't do things um and having both of those things knowing what, mm-hmm. what asshole you are knowing what asshole you're not and em- embracing the asshole that you're not uh th- those things help sort of help you survive these things and and like i said being at peace with all of it like not just be at peace with um you know what he knows he's not and um and just not, you know, just not care so much, you know, about um, what people think or things like that. You know, I, I just not try to be angry at those other people, you know, and just yeah, the people who canceled you and just be like, what, what, you know, it's all right. Like they felt some way and they got caught up in some really crazy times and uh, and and the morality behind it felt right at the time maybe they still feel it feels right and you know just understand them too it helps it helps but oh now i remember what you're saying you were saying when you read the book oh didn't see into the camp you didn't read that it was you couldn't read into that something no traumatic had occurred which is which is fine which is actually good i was hoping that that it could be read both ways like you didn't have to have the cancel piece but if you know that, which a lot of people that will read the book probably will, it, it just it's like an added little insight. And I like the idea of the book working in two different ways and being able to stand on its own either way, because I like yeah. multiple kinds of readings. Well, I mean, I think the the big reason that that you, you can gloss right? over. I, what? I, lost the, I lost the beginning lost of what you said. Ugh, I'm I'm worried. I'm very worried. This is this recording is going to be crap, and we're going to have to do this conversation all over again. Okay. I'm praying that's not true. Okay. But I I also like enjoy talking to you. So if if that if it comes to that, it comes to that. But sure. um, I uh, no, the I think the reason that that I could gloss over any extenuating circumstances from your life before is that it takes place during the pandemic. 
So mm-hmm. that's like a very big cloak to throw over everything, you know, like pandemic time, pandemic can, can sort of, yeah, it's sort of a, it's sort of like a lot of, a lot of dark things flourish under the, under the umbrella of the pandemic. So like, fantasy and and surreal thoughts feel very appropriate during the pandemic which you have a lot of that in your book depression feels very apropos during the pandemic the the sense of like listlessness and restlessness mixing with one another like this kind of like bored but jumpy energy i think is a very pandemic energy and um, yeah, and 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 also there were these. There is one part where you're like walking into a into a, a four lane highway type road, and you just start like doing wacky stuff in the middle of the road. And I definitely thought about yeah, that kind of like the pandemic allowed people to do like very odd things in public very odd things especially in like ghost towns you know like nobody was watching you so you could just sort of like yeah I don't know I mean like I was I I just kept sticking my tongue out a lot behind my mask until it would like move the mask away from my mouth <laughs> and I I just it was like so compulsive and mm-hmm. weird and like I don't know what I was I don't know what kind of a tick I was cultivating, but I was just sort of like, it was a coping mechanism, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I thought that, I thought, so I kind of added all the COVID stuff a little bit late into the into the writing. The pandemic, I I'm, I reference this in the book. There was this part, there, there was this aspect of it that I kind of welcomed because I had just been, um, so so I was, my whole ostracizing thing was 2018, so it was before the pandemic. So going into the pandemic, I was already feeling everything that the entire world was about to feel. Like I had, like jobs gone, taken away, not, not for their own reason, um, isolation, depression. So I was like, I had a head start. And because everyone else was sort of brought down to my level, it was a it was definitely a kind of like a misery loves company kind of experience. So um, and and I I, I read um, uh, the plague, um, Camus the plague, and was what was great about the plague is that it's written in the I think it's written in the 30s, and it's it's about a plague that's like a uh, hundred years earlier, but then you can read it in 2020. These three different time periods, and they all seem to, it, it all seems to relate. Uh, there's there's so many connections through all of it. So it made the, pla- the, the, the plague, it made the pandemic to me feel a little bit more manageable. Like I could breathe a little easier, meaning like, yes, this is unprecedented. Unprecedented was said like a billion times, but yes, it's unprecedented in a lot of ways, but also let's not freak out. This happens every hundred years. <laughs> Something like this ha- has happened a lot before. And in Camus' The Plague, you see all the same characters that we saw. You see the 
the people who don't believe and they end up dead. And then you see the people who believe too much. And uh, then you see the people, um, I, I was one of these people. There was a, a, a character named Cotard who um, was like suicidal in the beginning of the book before the plague hit. And then the plague hit and he's in a great mood because everyone's a Cotard at that point. Um, de depressive, cr crazy person. And then, um, and then once the plague starts lifting, he goes crazy again and starts shooting people. Um, so that that was again a, a, an important um, to to have that aspect of the, of the pandemic continually continually in the background, um, and knowing that at some point I'm going to have to leave. At some point the pandemic uh, is going to end. It's at some point I, I you know uh, I can't just stay in a hotel a motel forever or whatever. So knowing yeah. that move, you have to move at some point, maybe not move on, but you have to move. That's why I ended the book the way I did with, I just, I got up to leave and then didn't realize, didn't even think about where I was going next, but just was okay with just going <laughs> and just figuring mm -hmm. it out. Um, well, I gotta put these dogs back. Um, so yeah. Uh, it's a very pandemic-y kind of book. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, there's been a lot of books that that people have called their pandemic novels. And and then there's like the um, subsequent uh, exhaustion with the concept that people wrote their pandemic novels. But like, I'll allow it, you know? <laughs> like... There's a lot to process there, and everybody's got their own story and their own perspective on what happened. And yeah, it it seems to me, if you're a, if you're a person like you and me, if you're a person that that wants an audience for their their thoughts and their words, then then you're gonna write about it like I think in some way you have to write about it and and have your your version of what what you felt and what you went through during that time and I think your version because you write about Niagara Falls because you write about a place that like really doesn't exist without tourism and you right. write about it during a time when there is no tourism like that's a goddamn interesting perspective like i was very moved by the uh the ghostliness of of a place that you know just just had the the air kind of like sucked right out of it the the commercial air just you know uh blown out of town and um yeah and 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 i i was really curious about the people who were left behind uh and how they lived uh in the face of of not having not having the usual like rigmarole that that takes up space in town like that although i guess Niagara Falls has its tourist season and then it has its like wintry time 
which might be like a micro version of of what the pandemic was. Yeah, although they promoted it really hard in the in the winter, if it's snowing and all the and if it's cold enough, is the the ice is all beautiful. Um, I yeah. saw it then. I thought it was amazing. The yeah. the way the rocks turn into like white whales, right. like. I thought that was that was incredible. No. You know, by the way, I wanted to tell you, I I had uh, in college, I had a boyfriend from Buffalo, and I went to visit his family, um, and we went to Niagara Falls, and and his family kind of reminded me of your family. It was like there was always a TV on. And like every time we ate something, it was coming out of like a crock pot. And mm -hmm. it like it was just like goop coming out of a crock pot that everybody was like ladling. I like I'll never eat a tortellini was it again. Was it no, good? No, it was disgusting. No, it was so gross. It was so gross. And wonder... we went to Tops. We went to Tops International, like the big Tops. A grocery store and I thought that place was impressive as fuck because I was living in Pittsburgh at the time and and that's a that had like you know it had like a really big Asian grocery section it was the first time that I saw like curry paste uh that came from like Thailand or whatever yeah, so it was it was a lot of like like there was some highbrow and some and some lowbrow happening at the same time for me. But mm -hmm. I ate fudge too. I ate fudge at one of those Niagara Falls, like food truck type places. Oh, yeah, they have all the food trucks lining Fall Street. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, a, it's also like, a, I thought it was an interesting um, uh, to share the literal perspective of when I was there, when there was no one on a nice day fairly nice day like to imagine no one being at Niagara mm -hmm. Falls it's really weird it, um, yeah. and it's really great too to have it all to yourself and to imagine that at some point in the in the way back history someone could have had the same experience just wandering up to this thing like what's so loud like you know, up, mm -hmm. up, you know? <laughs> um, so that was a really special time to have it all to myself I loved it you know, I, I sleep with white noise every night, and uh, this this wasn't in, in, during that trip, but uh, uh, several years ago, uh, I had a van, and um, I was going through Niagara Falls. I can't remember where I was going, and I stopped, and I parked as close as you can to the falls, which is actually pretty close. On the American side, you could get right up to, to it, mm. but you can get right up to it. Like you almost can reach out and touch it, but, um, but also just in terms of parking, this is like... I was parked really close to the falls and I cracked my windows and I slept with the greatest white noise. And um, I'll always remember that as a white noise fanatic. I got the best, I got the best there is. That <laughs> um, but, but also, you know, you mentioned the tourism and how, how the, how it was dead at that point, but, but um, also there Niagara Falls is full of contrasts and it's full of these dualities. And a lot of Niagara Falls is always dead. Um, and people will know that on the American, and I'm talking about the American side. Every time I'm talking yeah. about the 
talking about the American side, although that is also another part of its duality. It's a city that is both an American city and a Canadian city and an extreme in contrast in what they look like. Canada's all lights and wax museums and, and rides and bells and whistles. The American side, it's like the lights go off at eight o'clock. Um, like mm. if you're the bridge, the peace bridge that connects, if it's like midnight and you're standing between the two cities and you look to the Canadian side and you see all the lights and you look to the American side, it's all dark. It's like you feel like you're in the middle of like North Korea and South Korea where they, you know, like, oh, lights out, it's 10 o'clock. Um, so so there's there's all those contrasts and dualities. And um, and the book, I just wanted to fill the book with those as much as I could. Uh, you know, also the utopian dreamers were were um, were compelled to, to build there. Yet it's known as one of the so many uh, failures in in and urban planning um it's it's known for its its natural wonder and also known as a place with a lot of toxic waste it's known as a honeymoon capital of the world it's known as the suicide capital of the world so all these great extremes mm -hmm. um that i was able to explore in the book um and i wanted to to um to tease those out as much as i can as much as i could yeah, I remember when I wrote to you after I finished the book, I, I just thought of this. I wrote about the suicide element of it um, or aspect of Niagara Falls. And I thought, like, I still think that this is true, that like a person who, you know, decides to take their life, but really, can't, you know, can't leave this world without a little showmanship, you know, like Niagara Falls is for you. Totally. And I, mean, I think I think it's beautiful because because like like if you're if like people commit suicide all the time and if their story is just like yeah, you know, he, he turned on the the um car and and closed the garage door or she jumped off a bridge and it's it's you know it's so not memorable it's like so easy to not think about their moment of death when the story is that um average but if you tell me that your uncle died jumping off at, or jumping into niagara falls like i see a person jumping into niagara falls like i can see it I'll take a moment and commune with that feeling, that image, that vicarious sensation of myself jumping into that chasm. I mean, it's a really, I, I don't know. I just think it's sort of like, in a way, it's antithetical to, to how I imagine suicidal people feel. Like, I feel like if you're really ready to end it, you're just going to end it like in the easiest, quickest way possible. But like, I don't, there's like a special brand of person that's like, I haven't done much in my life, but I'm going to give this my all. Well, people it, like um, the Golden Gate Bridge, people will travel to Niagara Falls to kill themselves. Um, and, you know, I, I can't say that I, I, I know the very difficult and ex extreme mindset of someone who is prepared to kill themselves, but I, I could see how if your natural impulse is still kicking in not to pull the trigger in a gun that there is an allure of being like, okay, 
I could go to Niagara Falls and do this. And it's at least a draw. It's at least something that will help me do it. You know, if their pain is so bad that they want to end it, um, that that perhaps having this allure of 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 having this one last experience um of being blanketed with this water and the sound and then it's 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 over. Um maybe maybe that's why people will actually travel to it. Not so much for the romance of it, but bef- because um because it's it's a lot it's a lot more uh, satisfying to to do that than just pull trigger on a gun. It's it's actually something that pulls them to do it, not because they yeah um, want to just want to experience it, but it's going to help them do it. Their pain is so bad, and they want to actually do it. The gun's not working. Perhaps something like Niagara Falls will work. I don't know. Again, I don't know the mindset of someone. I've never been there, but um, no, I, I think that's that's a really I think that's profound. Like I, I never, now that you say it, like, yes, of course, of course. Like it is, it is about gravity. It is grave. Like it is about water continuing to pour down in such a rush that it just like consumes everything. And then it can consume you too. Yeah. Yeah. I see, I see it. I see it. And it was also, um, you know, a very, uh, um, I would say, careful dance I did around suicide in the book because I didn't want to, I, I wasn't suicidal at that time. I know a lot of people who have gone through major cancellations or traumas or whatever um, say that they were. I, I wasn't. And I didn't want to imply that in the book, but I also needed to talk about suicide. You know, mm-hmm. I I ruminated about the topic of suicide while I was there because everyone's like, oh, be on suicide watch for Rick. I'm like, no. So suicide was definitely part of the language of a post-trauma, post-cancellation, whatever. Um, but I was I, I didn't feel suicidal, but um, I definitely thought a lot about what that was. Um, and especially I had to put it in the book because I was in Niagara Falls, too. Um, yeah. Want it to be like a suicide kind of book. I didn't want it to be like leaving Las Vegas style, like I'm 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 going there to end my life or something or dramatic like that. So so that was a very careful dance that I was trying to do was not make it a suicide book, yet I had to talk about I couldn't ignore it <laughs> at the same time. You know? Yeah, I mean the the way that you're low in the book, um us like, you know it's hard without knowing your back without knowing the backstory to know what put you there but mm-hmm. like the fact that you are yeah your your actions are the actions of someone that's not taking care of themselves and i think that that was really um I related to that a lot. I, I, and I related to the way that you made the peace that you could make with being depressed in that, under those circumstances. Like, I think you have a little list about like, ex, you know, how do you, how do you get through a really tough time? Like you expect less of yourself, you know, you, yeah. And just like, 
just like the way that you talk about like how bad your socks smell and you know shoving like Arby's in the trunk of the car like everything like you just keep buying like the shittiest food in the world and throwing it in the the trunk of your car and forgetting about it and there's just something really without you having to come out and say like guys I'm not feeling great like it's it's a very masterful I think way of describing how that mood affects you when you're alone when there is no one to say I'm not feeling well and like your family is there but your family is certainly not the kind of family where you could go and have a heart to heart about you know how you're doing Mm -hmm. um and so so you're completely alone with your your thoughts and your feelings and and the way that your surroundings are are just you know literally kind of haunted by these uh these towns that have dissolved or mostly disappeared these like utopian towns and mm-hmm. and then in place of them it's just like parking lot after parking lot after parking lot yeah i mean if you weren't depressed to begin with like that gonna make you probably pretty depressed being in that setting well yeah but going back to the um the misery loves company like covid um theme that i was talking about that's also how i felt being in niagara falls so when i went to niagara falls yes it's cold depressing um and it has a bad reputation and i was like oh like me, <laughs> you know, that's just like me. <laughs> so, um, I felt a kinship with it in the same way that yeah. I didn't want the pandemic to end. There was this feeling like, God, I hope, I hope this town never gets on its feet. Like, you know, as long yeah. as I, well, I yeah. do, well, I do, because it's, it's at the same level with me and we're, we're buds right now. Like I understand the city because <laughs> it wasn't the city's fault either. It's not the city's fault that it's all fucked up. It's just a piece of land that's, you know, divided by some lines on a map. It, it doesn't make itself bad. It actually started off with having some um, really amazing assets that that Earth gave it <laughs> with this waterfall. And it's not its fault that it was kind of abused by, by people that were trying to build it. It's not its fault that um, in, uh, corporations buried toxic waste all over the place. So there was all these feelings like that I really was related to Niagara Falls. And um, so and that's why I all, also in the book really wanted to bring that out and why the cover of the book and all the photos in the book are not of this, the splendor of the falls, but uh, more representative of the, of the other part of the falls that I actually grew to love. You know, I'm not, it's mm-hmm. not a, poverty porn book i'm not showing these pictures of empty parking lots because oh my god look how fucked up it is it's because i found beauty and and solace in these solace in these places and yeah that's how i felt to looking at an empty parking lot was how, how i felt inside and i was like hey bud hey empty parking lot let's hang out <laughs> <laughs> yeah you have this um you have this uh line about uh a motel sign that is the exact same color gray as the as the sky so it looks like the words are just 
Yeah, I have a, floating in space. <laughs> I have a photo of that, but it was too black and white. It wouldn't fit work with the book. I also wanted to yeah. the landscapes, but I a lot of the things that were in the book, I actually have photos of. I was taking photos like crazy while I was there. And uh, I really wanted to put more photos in the book, but some of them just didn't work. Like I have a photo of... Uh, oh, when I do readings of this, I'm going to do a slideshow. I already have the slides. And oh, that's include, nice. It'll include all the other photos. But I actually have the photo. It sounds like it's some, something I made up in the book, but I have a photo of the suicide hotline phone that is, you know, they have them lined with the falls. And there was one that said out of order. And it's just, <laughs> you know, the world's telling you something. <laughs> you, you get to that that phone Call if you need anything. Like, oh, sorry, we're out of. Um, yeah, that place is full of stories. I mean, I, I really want to know what the corporate meeting was about putting the out of orders. Like, just take yeah. down the whole sign. Don't even <laughs> indicate that there was ever a suicide hotline because it is so much worse to see that yeah. there was something. And, and yeah. now you're, you're killing the person. Yeah, that phone is killing someone. If if they're at the end of the rope and they finally get to that phone and it's out of order, they're dead. They're gone. Yeah. They're um, yeah. That, that just um, makes the city. I can't. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I do, I, I'm thinking about the fact that you came from Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore is also, it's not exactly like a sunny, fun place to live either. Right. So. Different character about it than Niagara Falls for sure, obviously. But that was, that, that has its own type of, Hellscape. You know the uh, the the artist Joe Coleman. He did all the covers for the um, uh, what are they called? Uh, Apocalypse Culture books. The Apocalypse Culture one and two. Anyway, they're just like pictures of like the 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 worst of all like urban um, terrors, like just drugs and shooting and people getting killed and people getting raped and it's just like these awful paintings. And there, sometimes I really felt like that was, he was just painting Baltimore. Um, I mean, I agree. Like, if, say it again. That's a hard place to live in a different way. I don't think, uh, yeah. you know, they, they both have their, you know, living in a place like Niagara Falls, a post-industrial kind of wasteland, um, has its own form of, that can weigh, weigh on you own its own way that it can weigh on you than than baltimore does um but um yeah it wasn't so so yeah coming from there to niagara falls was and and i i one thing i don't put in the in the in the book that i was thinking about was that i i had a partner through this whole time she was living in new york oh you did yeah um we we were just in the beginning of being back together when this all happened. So it was very mm, tense. Um, I, I had, we had been together like 15 years ago and then broke up and came back together. So, um, but I didn't put it in the book because, you know, 
I'm also a writer and I want to make some artistic choices. So <laughs> that was, I, I felt like having her in there, um, I, I needed to be as alone as possible in the book to really get across. How yeah. Clean, you know, um, so. But she, was she with you in Niagara Falls? No, no. no. She came. Okay, so, uh, she's yeah. come back. To, this is actually a really important part of, you know, uh, uh, this. I don't know if this is going to sound corny when I when I say it, but it, I don't. It's, it's. I'm not meaning it to be corny, and it doesn't come off as corny in the book. But the book is also about coming to term. You know, coming to terms with, hey, my family's not so bad, or you know, even if I, I had. A, yeah, I definitely felt that. Yeah, and I think that's that's why keeping the food part is important to me because, um, you know, there there's this whole part in the book is you know there I I. It's like the second chapter or whatever you call it, where I'm just going from bad food place to bad food place. And I don't stop even I it's like not realistic. I can't eat that much, but in, I just go from one place to the next. And if I'm full, I'm just putting it in the trunk and mm-hmm. sent the book to a few readers. And that, that never got like a, a, a that part never got a big, a high grade I'll say, but I kept it in there because I felt that I needed to seed something in the very beginning that shows that, I feel like I'm aware that this food is bad. Um, and maybe in a different time in my life, I felt better than I felt like I was too good for that food. But in this moment, I just fall, I'm just like, fuck it. I'm going to eat this bad food. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Better than that. But I, I, maybe I'm not, maybe that's who I am. Maybe I like McDonald's fries and, and, and a hot food Sundays. And that, later on in the book comes to uh, comes to fruition in different ways of of saying you know definitely there was a period in my life where i resented my family um for uh, struggling times early in my life um there were times where i definitely thought i was better than my family but um in the end of the book when i when i basically just watching horror movies with them and it actually feel felt good and that's real yeah had those moments where i was like you know what? You're not that different than them. You're not di- you're, you're not really that different than them. The cancellation had a really huge humbling effect on me, and I don't want to say that in a a way that gives credit to the mob. You know, they didn't. No, I understand. You know I mean? Yeah, like, but no matter no matter what, something like that is going to humble you in some way. Um, and that was kind of one of the ways it, it did it was to just. Um, you know, and, and that's also why I kept the part in there where I wrote like a little self-help page, you know, that page you were referring to is because, and this is related to the fantasy stuff too. I, most of my life, I would think self-help books are corny, like motivational, listen to motivational speakers are corny. Like my mom, who, my mom, who is like, uh, most of her life, the older she got, the more like childlike she got. And like, she was living in fantasy and I was, re- I thought that was stupid as well. Like, why would people have to live in a fantasy world and, and decorate yeah. their in a way that is, is like Southwest themed and thinking they live somewhere that they don't. <laughs> um, but the older I got, and then especially after the cancellation, I was like, I won't say that I got, I was into self-help, but I understood why people would do it. Um, and maybe even a little bit of an attraction to it. Um, and I certainly started to be a, a, aware yeah. of why I would have a, a kind of a fantasy life and a childish fantasy life. Um, 
And I was like, I understand it. I understand it. Like, what's the alternative? It, it it's 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 pain. It could be pain. Yeah. And I was after my cancellation, I was definitely doing a lot more fantasy distractions than I ever done in my life. I was into I've always been a little bit into sports, but I was like obsessed with sports. I was obsessed with uh, with games and anything else that was just like a distraction from reality. Um, so and that's, of course, why um, the a lot of the book, there are parts of it that de- devolves into absolute surrealism and total fantasy and um is because i wanted to show that i can also i understand why you would live in a fantasy life i don't think that's stupid anymore and i understand if people do it and i don't credit i don't criticize them for doing it um and also those fantasy parts were both fun to write and well a little bit of a challenge too because i didn't want to craft them too much like that yeah all, all first draft and like any temptation to edit them too much i i gave up i was i resisted because i I wanted them to almost sound like they were coming from a more juvenile part of me like the word goblin like when i wrote the word goblin i was like oh that's a stupid word go back and change that at some point and i was like no Mm. goblin is a stupid word and we're gonna keep it in there i want to sound different um but also you know keep up the game at some point of not being able to hopefully the reader doesn't know at some point what might be real and what is not real and then yeah i mean do that for a writer you know for a reader a little game yeah i i i thought it worked really i thought it worked really well um especially like the goblin uh who's or this kind of like doppelganger version of you in your parents' basement who's, like, luring you to play games with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I got it. I mean, <laughs> you know, but I... And the thing is, is it's kind of going back to what you're saying, which is, like, on the one hand, you could, you could see it as, like, metaphorically obtuse, like, two on the nose, like, but on the other hand, like when you are as uh, distant from yourself as you must have been in in that moment for a number of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is kind of the way your psyche functions. Like it goes to these very uh, basic kind right. of horror movie trope fantasies or like you know yeah you're not reaching for anything that's intellectually heavy right you're reaching for just the simplest way from getting from minute to minute which you know and then and then when I think about your and and when I think about it that's sort of the that's sort of the Zen that your family has found for itself. Right. It's like, Oh shit. Hi. Um, It's yeah. It's sort of like um, life is hard. Let's watch uh, Beverly Hills Chihuahua. 
And, and when, when you accept that life is hard, when you watch Beverly Hills Chihuahua or was it Beverly Hills Chihuahua too? It doesn't matter. Um, yeah. When you watch it, you will enjoy it. You will enjoy it because you will understand that it was made to be enjoyed. And when you've spent like decades and I, I relate to this because, you know, I, I also feel very different from my family, but when you've spent decades, like, cultivating this idea of yourself as above all of that Mm -hmm. uh it you know to remove those irony goggles and just be like fuck it you know drew barrymore plays a fucking great chihuahua and i'm into this and i'm just here and i'm accepting it and everybody is laughing and there's warm food and there's warm bodies and why why strive for more (laughs) you know and it's and it's actually fun. Like if you can give yourself over to it. And I I, I was going to say about my my partner Miriam, she she grew up in an Orthodox Jewish uh, upbringing um, until she was nineteen. So her childhood was very different than mine. So when yeah. she goes, um, she's definitely helped me reconnect with my family in in some ways, because when when I took her there for Christmas the first time, it was like the best holiday she's ever had in her life she thinks they're so fun they're so funny like the um they're so cool they're so nice they're so exciting and that was a moment when when she had her when she experienced my family where i was like yeah you know what i, I guess you're right i guess you're right but as a child <laughs> you kind of fit against it like your family's not cool you know but yeah this is it's in I don't think anyone in my family, I don't think I'm going to let anyone in my family read this. Maybe a couple. Yeah. That's... A couple people in my cousins or something that, um, that kind of know the deal, you know? Um, but I think it's too much for my mom or my aunts. My dad wouldn't read. I don't even know if my dad reads anything but box scores, but, um, but yeah, I, I I would be a little bit protective of them reading it, um, even though I don't think it's and you know it's against them. But it goes in it goes deep into my relationship with them, and I didn't want to pull back in any way with that. But that must be tough for people that that are closer to their family and the, their, if their family has tabs on them, you know, because my family doesn't even know what I do really, but if they, you know, writing a book about their family, that must be tough. If that maybe, maybe I wouldn't do it if I knew that my family was going to read it, you know, but it was important. And like I said, they, they had, um, I didn't have the best childhood. So I, 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 I'm due for at least one good book out of it. That might be somewhat critical. (laughs) I've earned at least one, you know? Um, Yeah. And and food is always a big part of their identity, so I needed to keep a lot of the food in there. And I think that's, um, I think that's a thing with a lot of Western New York area. Food becomes a really big part of your identity. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to talk about writing. By the way, it's really, I just want. I guess I yeah, it is really great. I'm really grateful to that to to that you asked me to to do this. Like it, it's not, it's not. 
it doesn't happen all the time for, for me. And it sometimes never happens for other people that are writers that they'll get an email from, from a stranger and say, I, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your book. I just, I just want to put that in perspective that that's, that's a real luxury and that's really great. And I, I do appreciate it. I don't know why oh, that thanks right now, but no, it's it's nice <laughs> of you to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess this is why I, why I do it a large part of why I do the podcast and yeah. And, and also just um, like why I, I gravitate to certain presses and certain kinds of writers is, you know, what you do and what I do writing wise, it's not that dissimilar. Like we write about our past and we write about our, our lives and we, don't disguise a lot and we don't fictionalize a lot and um and that's like a really vulnerable way to write and it's a it takes a lot out of you I think and uh I don't know I think like there might be like a, a way of looking at it like oh it's less imaginative or you just can't uh craft a plot <laughs> that's you know, that's fictional. And that mm -hmm. might be true. But, but I think there's also a lot of bravery to doing it. And I, and I, I have to say, like, you know, I'm in the middle of writing my own book and, and, and reading your book really made me want to strive for, for a more lucid narrative than what I have right now. Because it was a, it was a pleasure to read something that went from point A to point B to point C and didn't cut around a lot and didn't and didn't feel fragmented. Um, and it made me think about what I've been writing and the kind of like staccato voice of of jumping back and forth and and jumping into my thoughts so deeply that like I lose a sense of of where where the story is going and I I don't think that I don't know I think basically it's not that your the story of what you wrote is that um uh tremendous or something but it but it links things in a narrative way. And I think, I think I wasn't, I wasn't as sure that that was important yeah, until I, I read your book. I don't even know if there is a story in my book. I'm not even sure. There is, there oh. is the story <laughs> because like this, and this is what I was saying to you. It's like, it's a Buffalo 66 type thing where it's like, the story is, you needed to get a car and then you go to the place to get a car. Like, you know, first your dad drops you off there and then there, and then this day happens and then that day happens. And it, it's cr chronological and the chronology I think really grounds it um, and makes it possible to take in the, the like direness of your situation Whereas I think there's been a trend in some of the stuff that I've read lately. And the trend is to 
is to not link things chronologically to to see that as a narrative crutch that is unnecessary or or not pure or something like that and to be honest like unless the writing is so good that you can forgive that it makes for dense difficult reading whereas I thought your book was very easy to read Mm -hmm. on a on a level of just like following page after page like I read through it quickly it stayed with me and the story still feels like it's sort of in me and I'm not sure that that would be true if it was just like snapshots in a food court interspliced with like fantasies about goblins right you know what helped me was keeping it funded with chronology is is that like I said I didn't start the book writing I switched gears at some point. It was a totally different book. So when I started writing this book, chronology is pretty much all I had because I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I just wanted to start writing. So I just paced myself to say, okay, well, I'm just going to trust. I'm going to write this part and then I'm going to go to the next place and see, just trust that something will build out of it. I know it's a cliche where writers will say like, I didn't know what I was writing. You know, the story will, tell I don't know whatever those cliches are where they, they don't yeah 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 the story is going until they start writing it but you know yeah. that was in this case and 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 I think that's why it um it came out as chron- chronological as, as it did is because I I was just buying time until I I could start <laughs> start tying together you know I that's a good way of putting it I guess I was really buying time I was just saying like okay maybe by the next Maybe by the time I'm in my mom's house in the second chapter, I'm going to pick up some some motifs to start threading together. Maybe by the next part, I'm mm. going to come up with a, you know, uh, I'm going to understand what voice I'm using. And then I can go back to the beginning and, and, and unify that voice. So, yeah, and that helps for me with uh, the, chrono- the chronology. It wasn't. Does that mean it was a crutch or does that mean it was a process procedural um, component? I don't know, but um, it's definitely the kind of book that, that very close um, sequential format works for it because it's, there's, it's, there was not a lot of discursion in that experience that I was going through. It was very much in one direction. Um, Mm -hmm. That was, um, it wasn't a downward spiral or uh, that's not a good way of putting it, but it was, it was, to- it was towards a vacant space and I, I needed agree. to walking towards that vacant space step by step in that book. So um, yeah, I'm glad that, that, that was, that it was um, like readable in that way. Um, and- can I, can I ask how, um, how different, what was the shape of the book when you, you uh, gave it to Jeff at, at Pig Roast? Pretty much the Did same. Did it change a lot? No, okay. But no. it was like the most finished manuscript he'd, he'd seen, is what, is what he said. That's nice. Um, although when I gave it to, um, my partner edited the book. Um, she does that for a living. So that, that was great. Um, 
when I got it back from her, there were, I'm really bad at like punctuation and <laughs> me too. Shit. <laughs> so, so it wasn't that it wasn't finished in terms of like correct grammar and stuff and tense and all yeah. that. But I, what he meant was in terms of the story, you know, n- yeah. not much change from the manuscript to the definitely no uh, major parts were edited mm. out. It's pretty much how he got it. So, um, so that was good that it wasn't very. And did did you so did you go through a long process before you you handed it to your partner or was was it sort of like first from first draft to to the draft after she did punctuation was it? I mean, I, I guess what I'm asking is like, ha- how many drafts did you write? Do you think? Um. I don't, it, it wasn't like, um, I don't know. Me, I don't know if other, maybe other writers do it that way, but I, I didn't like finish a whole draft and then change it. I was basically writing. Um, I guess it was just one draft and then, and then I would go back and tie some things together and I would send it to readers. You know, I, I had a lot of people reading it for me. I had a couple people from Niagara Falls reading it or Buffalo um, just to make sure I had, you know, I was, I, that readers from Western New York, who, there, there will be a few, it'll be in bookstores in Western New York and stuff. Um, yeah. That it, that it, that it holds up for them in terms of their experience um, and then send it to people that don't have that experience and make sure that I wasn't making something that was too, um, localize or, 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 um, you know, um, too, too much about Western New York that things will get lost. So I would send it to different readers and then, and then adjust as I went along, but, mm. but it was really all, um, and maybe, maybe that helps why it was, why it's like a quick, easy read or, or at least, a I don't want to say easy read, but, uh, um well you can kind of you can kind of blow through it really quick that's how I wrote it It, like you know it was really easy and fun to write I mean again Mm. it took a long time to write because I was totally off track when I started writing about Niagara Falls totally off track but this is one of the first things that I've ever written that was so much my voice you know I I don't I don't know if I mentioned this or you, you know this, but I have a performance background. That's mostly what I did for most of my, my life. Um, Jeff said that, but I, I don't, I like I said, I don't really know that much about you. Yeah, that's good too. And um, so, so as a, so a lot of my writing, I, I get really into taking on other voices. It's like performing as writer, you know, like, I get it. It's like a bit of a thrill to write like an academic piece and then write like a piece for like an article for uh, a serious article, uh, academic thing or, um, or the, I, I have a series of these two books so far it's just two books that are like fake young adult novels, but <laughs> I try to write them so much like I am a young adult novelist, but just with no boundaries. 
So it's always these kind of like taking on different voices and I kind of get a kick out of that. But this was the first time that I felt like, or at least the first time in a long time that I wasn't, that I wasn't taking on a different role or, or uh, uh, putting on a different, different sort of mask as a, as a writer. And that made it a lot more, so much, so much easier to write. Um, and fun too, and fun. So, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, and I guess, and I guess to okay. perform, to have that background of performing, yeah, maybe there's like an innate part of you that is, uh, or a trained part of you that really knows how to like link a story together. Like, even when it's a story that for you maybe felt disjointed because the time of your life that you were writing about felt disjointed, but like there was some undercurrent of, of being able to like hold it together because you had, I don't know, actually I'll, I'll drop that train of thought. Uh, Cause I don't, I don't really have, I don't have anywhere good to go with it, but. Um, I will also say that it's, it's also a very, I think one of the reasons that I don't often write in that voice is because it's, more vulnerable because when you're writing yeah. like you're oh i'm pretending i'm a young adult novelist if someone doesn't like it it's like well i guess they don't it's like that i'm playing yeah but if someone doesn't like this book they might not like me <laughs> <laughs> so uh, definitely makes it more vulnerable which apparently you've also you've also had a lot of training for people not liking you yeah, right? yeah you know you've had the kind of stampede so, version of people not liking you um but it's yeah that's okay too if they don't but do you know every i mean the 20 people who listen to this podcast are gonna wonder what you got canceled for do you want to not say what it what that story is it's up to you i'm, I'm never um especially over the past couple of years, I've never, I, I never really shy away from it, but um, th sometimes I don't want to talk about it because, um, you know, like I was saying with how writing the book helped find a way to talk about it um, that wasn't contentious or blamey. When I'd start talking about, the actual events it's a little harder for me to do that <laughs> um so okay i see it you know what i mean yeah yeah so, yeah no i i, I, I definitely know what you mean i will say this because it's it's funny and it really um it really highlights the absurdity of some of the definitely mine but a lot of other cancel things my the ball started rolling with my cancellation with a, a Facebook post, we're both old enough to remember Facebook and how it used to work, but it was a Facebook post by uh, an ex-lover and former collaborator about a, um, see, I'm already get. I already feel like I'm getting a little bitchy. But. Uh, yeah. About <laughs> <laughs> um, well, a, 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 a debate about or questioning or an accusation that I was trying to take credit for an idea for a film that we worked on together. Film meaning like short seven minute 
experimental, low-budget film about um, people who are people who like getting slimed as a sexual fetish. It's called gunging in, in English, and um, that was that. If, if you can imagine, that's the post that I got that um, you know started snowballing was about this stupid movie about people getting slimed and, and, and credit for that movie to fast forward like seven months later and to see me without a job, without a home, <laughs> without like totally wrecked. It's, it's really crazy to think, just take the beginning and the end of that and be like, what the I fuck? Mean, yeah. I mean, you know, the image that I have in my head is if you, as a character on you can't do that on television like literally getting slimed you know like the yeah, way they used to do that on that show it was, it was really deep but um but yeah so it doesn't have any bearing on the book so much like no what, that's i think so um and they can find out i've written i've written articles about it i there's one article I wrote for a, a website that I don't think is great. It's on my own website. It's on my medium, whatever, um, that I still think is okay. Like I said, my first attempts at writing about it, I thought were clumsy and dumb and it didn't help. But, um, mm -hmm. but there's one where I write about Mike Tyson and then I somehow loop it back to me um, that I, I still think is a, I stand behind that one a little bit, but um, yeah. Um Okay, well, I I won't belabor it. I I, I like I I like leaving it in this nebulous, <laughs> nebulous slime place. So I, I was that's nice. so many damn things that I don't even know where where to start. Yeah, um, I mean this this is good though. But uh, the I wanted to um, I I I don't I wanted to end by. Because I, I made a reminder to both of us that so one of the things that I thought was like profoundly different than the the modern auto fiction books that I've been reading lately is mm -hmm. that it's like a relatively sober book that you wrote like there's no constant drunkenness there's no there's no mention of I think even weed smoking uh there's no coke there's like this idea that that transgressive writing or um uh modern auto fiction has to be linked to those sorts of crutches i think yeah. it's gotten to a point where where it's like actually getting quite boring to read about people's chemical dependencies and uh and i i just wondered a if that was there and you you cut it out of the narrative or if it you know to what extent was it a choice and also what do you what do you think about what i just said like what do you think about the the kind of um you know the army that follows Bukowski and and needs to write about getting fucked up and in great detail. Well, first, I mean, if it's good, it's good. I mean, I could still, I could, 
I could still read stuff, even though I, I agree it could get a little tired at times. But if someone if someone is has those demons or is struggling with something or is was struggling with something and they feel like they need to express it as a writer and they do it well, that's fine. But I guess the short answer about my book being sober would just be that I didn't I didn't drink or do drugs during that time during that timeline. Um I was I was too too broke. Uh, and I know some of the poorest people on, on the planet get drunk a lot. Hey, hey, hey. Um, but to me, I don't relate to the, to it in that way because, you know, sometimes when I go to the grocery store, there, there's a, there's a liquor store in the same plaza. And sometimes it's, it's a choice. Like, am I going to do bourbon or am I going to like get a loaf of bread and an egg or whatever? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I wasn't, that's the short answer is that I just didn't do it. But also I think if I did get drunk a couple of times, I probably wouldn't put it in the book because I didn't want it to be that kind of book. Um, uh -huh. well, let me put these dogs, dogs out. Oh, God. Um, so, so yeah. Um, I didn't want it to pull, to pull away from anything and be like, Oh, he's dealing with addiction, especially because I keep it so mysterious. What I, what happened to me prior to me coming, I didn't want that to be mistaken as some breadcrumb to be like, Oh, I see. He, he's, he's, he's like a recovering alcoholic or something. So, mm. so I didn't want to put anything like that in that could have been misread as being more important than it was. Um, so, so that's all. I mean, I didn't like have a really conscious effort to be like, this is a sober book trademark, but. Um, no, I, I didn't think that. I didn't think that you were trying. Yeah. Okay. No, I guess that was my question. Never mind. You're right. You're right. I, okay. I think I was primed as a reader for that to be a part of it. I was, I, I felt like I was waiting for the, you know, mystical thoughts at Niagara Falls while you, you know, take mushrooms, smoke weed, do acid, whatever. Although I guess like Niagara Falls and the state, the state that you were in, it wasn't really a, a mind exploration state. It was more of a, yeah, it was a regressive state, which I don't think goes as well with psychedelic drugs yeah no um but one thing you, something you said that um makes me think like maybe you know i i did when you you sent me an email and you said something about what do you call it transgressive autofiction right yeah like, I, I didn't i didn't know i'm a, i'm not I'm not really that smart. I didn't even know what I was. I don't know what I was writing. Is that if that that's the genre? Oh, that's great. I'll take it. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I yeah, know what yeah. I was writing in terms of genre, so maybe if maybe that helped me avoid some of the trappings of that genre, is because I I didn't know I was writing in that genre, and I had some codes to live by. <laughs> you know, because no, I think it's cool. I. I'm not even sure that I, yeah, I'm not even sure that, I guess I just sort of thought like, maybe I just think all writers 
who write about their lives, write about, write about their, their addictions. Maybe I, maybe I just don't, I don't think that, that there are many writers that exist without some form of addiction or lately I've just been reading all of the ones that do have addictions and it's coloring the way that I read you. Yeah. But who knows? Yeah. Uh, and who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm glad to be considered as part of any genre, like, especially like, as I get older, like, I don't have envious of people that have communities like you know like writers groups. I'm in a bowling league. I have you like bowling. I joined that like a few weeks ago. And I'm like, feels good to be on a team, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Not settle friends, but the only community of that my friends are in are that they are friends of Rick. You know, or it's like not a writing community. Yeah. Like, so I'll, I'll I'll be in the trans aggressive auto fiction community that sounds good to me oh okay i mean let's <laughs> let's make leather jackets <laughs> yeah, that's really good um and also even like this oh man this, this dog um all it's it's also um something like even being on the podcast like i was saying i was really grateful for it it's good maybe this happens to a lot of writers but sometimes you need reinforcement that you're actually a writer I go through like 100%. serious, like um, imposter syndrome about it. Like, I will tell you, this isn't even, this is really strange. I had this, when I was reading uh, the first proof that Jeff sent me, um, it was like, you know, perfect bound book. Um, I've written other books, but still I had this weird fleeting moment, like less than a second. One of those weird thoughts that just crosses your mind for a blip. When I was in the middle of reading the book that I was like, whose book is it? Whose book is this? But, you know, it was like some author's book, you know, like I couldn't be my book. I, I'm not an author. I'm like, Oh, you know, oh. so, so like there's these moments where you have to be reinforced that, yeah, you are a writer, you know, yeah. <laughs> at least for me, because to me, like reading truth in my hands, it felt uncanny. It was like looking at your own head in your hands. It's like, this isn't possible. So, um, so yeah, that's another reason that I appreciate moments like this, but also like being a part of being a part of a writing community helps reinforce that too. You need those reinforcements um, sometimes, the reminders, you know, that yeah, it's not just something you call yourself; it's something that you are and something that you do. So yeah, well, I think um, yeah. I mean, I think that it's uh, I like I I think that's the other main reason that I do this is because I'm trying to I'm constantly trying to build a community like I like in all all facets of my life um and the writing one is the trickiest the trickiest to build community in because writers are uh sensitive people um and a lot of the writers that I know are um mercurial people and uh and and i'm i'm also that way to some extent but i but yeah but like the fact that you had people to 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 send what you were writing to to read like yeah the the fact that you found jeff and that and that you felt comfortable giving him the book to publish like i think all of that is um yeah i'm like 
I'm not quite there yet. Uh, and, and I have imposter syndrome too. Like I, I, I'm scared. Like I'm, I was scared all day today that like what I am writing sh doesn't really need to be written and, and, and shouldn't even be, shouldn't be published. Not good enough. You know, like all of the things, all of the things. <laughs> And, yeah. and right. I don't, I don't know how people get over that, except to, to have somebody say, like, I read this latest thing you wrote, and it's funny, or I, you know, and, and it made, it made sense to me or whatever, like, yeah, I, well, there's, there's, a, a, there's a part in my book where the, the goblin or something gives birth to a Dan Brown novel. You know, that author, the terrible author. Yeah. So definitely, obviously, I had my doubts when I was writing. I was like, why am I writing? This is so bad. Yeah. So that moment where I, I was kept in there, where I was just telling myself, like, well, how about this? How, maybe this will help. A lot of writing is bad. If yours is bad, so what? So is a lot. Of, just just get, just do it. <laughs> so, um yeah, I think the line in the book is like, what? Yeah. Why are you giving this to me, Goblin? And he says something like, uh, just just, just read it so you know how your readers a will. real book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Maybe that'll help. Just remember yeah, that. Well, <laughs> I, okay, I will. I will. Yeah. <laughs> Then, um, yeah, then, yeah, maybe we, we can call this, yeah, sliming the Da Vinci code. That's what we'll call it. All right. You've got, you've got two, two luscious dogs that just want to like French you. So I'm going <laughs> to, this is a real, it's yeah. a real sexy moment to end on. And I'm going to, I'm going to go. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll stay in touch, Rick, because cool. I would like to um, I would like to show you some stuff that I've been working on, and also I I would like to introduce you to my friend who lives in the Catskills, who's also a writer named oh, Jason Picasa, oh, who you would love. Yeah, yeah, I'm do that, and and definitely send me stuff. I was actually I had a note to remind myself to ask you to send me stuff you're working on too. So. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot wait. Well, these guys, I think I gotta go. <laughs> All right. Bye.